Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, beginning at verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Thank you for being here to spend this time looking at the book of Proverbs. We've been looking at learning wisdom for ourselves as children of the Father, and then how to teach wisdom to those who are in our care, parents and others who are raising children. If you remember, looked at four foundations for wisdom found in the book of Proverbs, and then we looked at four tools for learning and teaching wisdom that are illustrated in the book of Proverbs. And I'd like to start today to look at some of the prominent topics that are mentioned in the book of Proverbs. And one of the most prominent is peace. I think we all love peace. Not everyone, I think, as we'll find, but we do all love peace, yet we know how fragile it is. It, all it takes is a wrong look, a misspoken or misunderstood word, or a glance, a whisper, and peace is shattered. It's a very fragile thing. It affects our marriages, it affects our children, our families, it affects churches when this peace is shattered. So the question I'd like you to be thinking about is this, how much does avoiding strife and quarrels matter to God? How important is that to him in the grand scheme of things? I, I don't think anyone thinks of himself or herself as quarrelsome, and yet it must be in some way a deep part of our nature because Scripture, Old and New Testament, is filled with so many warnings against being one who produces strife. And so it's good for us to look at that. What does God think of that? So here's three questions that I propose that we look at. Do I hate strife as much as God hates strife? Do I seek the wisdom to be a peacemaker? And thirdly, why does God hate strife? Why does God love peace? So let's start by looking at Proverbs chapter 6, beginning at verse 16. I, I'll tell you one thing I know. If God hates something, I want to stay far from it. Imagine this, the God of all creation who holds all of reality up by his word, who, who can breathe and things come into existence, and as the psalmist says, he withholds that breath and things shrivel away. One thing I know is I don't want to be about, I don't want my life to be about what God hates. So what does God hate the most? Here's Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. And it starts out with this interesting things. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And you think, what? He can't make up his mind? Are there six? Are there seven? That's not what it is. It's a poetic form used here. And then you'll see it used for example, I think four times in Proverbs chapter 30, there's three things, no four. And there's four things, no five. And it's a, a form which is, which is designed to draw attention 
primarily to the very last sentence. The main point is the last sentence, and it echoes and helps us to understand all that precedes. So what is it that God hates? I think this may surprise you. I, I think I'm surprised. Maybe I wouldn't have guessed it if it wasn't in God's revealed word. Well, it starts out pretty simply. Haughty eyes, those who look down on others. I'm glad I'm not as bad as her. Yeah, God hates that. A lying tongue, someone who has found out how easy it is to fool others, how easy it is to get out of trouble by just telling a lie, and it's become simply a part of their life now, and shedding innocent blood. And you'd think that's where it would end. I mean, what can be worse than murdering someone, being violent, slaughtering those who are absolutely innocent, and yet the proverb writer has not come to the climax yet. So the next verse says, it's a heart filled with wicked plans. It's a, it's a longing to do wrong. You know, it's, it's planning and dreaming of doing things which are wrong. And then what's in the heart, of course, moves the feet. And so it's feet that run to evil. Of course I'll go with you. I've been waiting to do that. Ooh, and don't worry about it. I'll come up with a lie to cover what we're doing. Let's just go. And then a false witness This is not a lying tongue, which is more a private affair. This is someone who subverts justice, someone who bears false witness, someone who's upending the court system and therefore rocking the very foundation of society. These are all bad things. God doesn't like any of them. In fact, God hates all of them. But there's something which is an abomination to the Lord. It's one who spreads strife among brothers. I don't know, would you have put that at the climax? Do you think that's the most important thing? And yet, here it says, in the deepest pit of hell, we find one who spreads strife among brothers. This, this is what God hates. The the previous section of verses in this same chapter, Proverbs 6, gives us a glimpse of the one who sows strife. And we could say he's one who's skilled in sowing strife. So if we think of wisdom as a skill, this is a kind of a devilish wisdom. Here's one who's skilled in, in sowing strife. Uh, verse 12 in Proverbs chapter 6. Let me read it. A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. So a worthless person, literally, but by the way, the word is, I should say not literally, but in Hebrew, it's Belial. And I, I point that out because you might remember that by the time we get to the New Testament, for example, 2 Corinthians 6, it becomes a name for the devil. The devil is called Belial. It's used as a title for him because he's the secret agent, you might say, behind every strife. Worthless. And then in verse 13, you know, it's, it's, it's not in the open. It's all winks and nods and smiles. It's in a way saying, you know, with whispers, private conversations, little gestures, signals, drawing one brother against another. See, I, I told you. You see what I meant? There's a kind of a deniability to it. If someone says, what did you do? He says, I didn't say a word. And it's true. It's all done secretly. It's like the woman who sat in church. This church had pews and she sat towards the front and she had a quarrel with the pastor and whenever 
he said something that she could, had whispered about before. She would turn to her friend and say, you know, raise her eyebrows. See what I mean? This guy's a loony, I told you. You know how it goes. You've done the same thing. You can say volumes with just raised eyebrows and, and a gesture. And then verse 14, the goal is to spread strife. He's skilled at it. He's good at it. It's devilish wisdom. In fact, the New Testament talks about this kind of devilish wisdom. And sometime you should spend some time looking at the end of James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. He starts off by saying, every kind of disorder, we might say the breaking of peace comes from the pit. It's, it's devilish, he says. And really, when you look at the description that James gives, you see it's really the foolishness which Proverbs talks about because he mentions there it comes from bitterness and jealousy and selfish ambition. And James contrasts that with heavenly wisdom, wisdom from above. And he interestingly says that wisdom is peaceable and it's gentle and it's reasonable, a word which means easily persuaded. It's not stubborn. So if I find myself arguing with somebody, I shouldn't say argue, discussing. We don't argue, we discuss. If I find myself arguing with somebody and there's no gentleness, if in the midst of this there's no longing for peace in my heart, then I may have become an ally of the devil. I could be working against the very Spirit of God because he loves peace. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit in us is peace. In Ephesians chapter 4, 1, there's a command, you know, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that's the command which Scripture gives. And if we don't do that, we may become allies not of the Holy Spirit, but of the evil spirit. So the truth is, God hates strife makers, but he loves peacemakers. God loves peacemakers. It's interesting, if you go to work, you're rewarded not necessarily for making peace. I know there's some advantages in it, but often we're rewarded for being aggressive. In sports, you know, you want to be assertive. You want to make your presence known. We are told, even in relationships, sometimes that how being manipulative and being angry works, we find. And so we do it. We find that people sort of cut a wide swath around us. They give in to us because they don't want to deal with us. And so it becomes a part of our nature to use these things. But the way of wisdom in this very foolish world is to love peace as God loves peace. And Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And that's the blessing we want, isn't it? We don't want to do what God hates, oh no. But we do want to be those who are blessed by God. Blessed are the peacemakers. So, wisdom, skill. Skill in living life the way God wants us. And one of the ways, one of the places we need skill is to gain wisdom in being peacemakers. So let me give you some very practical do's and don'ts. This could be a very long list, but just to illustrate, here's some do's and here's some don'ts. Some don'ts for wise 
peacemakers. So these are things we can learn and obviously things we can teach our children also. And if you'll turn with me to Proverbs chapter 26, as you read these verses, I think you'll find these things are obvious. You're saying, are you kidding me? I know all this. Yeah, but apparently we need to be reminded of this. That's why God put it here. So verse 17 says, like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. So obvious. Don't enter a quarrel. You don't have to. Don't meddle. It's not your business. Stay away from it. That seems pretty obvious, I think. On the other hand, some of us love arguments. Some of us love quarrels. If we see something going on, our ears prick up. Ooh, that's kind of interesting. And we move closer. First we just listen and then we start to contribute. Fools, Proverbs 20 tells us, just love strife. 20 verse 3 says, keeping away from strife is an honor for a person, but any fool will quarrel. We love quarreling. In fact, it's interesting, you read the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus. These are instructions written to leaders of the church. And just go down and underline how often there are warnings about people who are quarreling or, or are causing controversy and fights in the church. In the church, these are Christians. It's very common. It's part of our human nature. And yet, they never see themselves as such. Because Paul gives illustrations each time he mentions it of what they're arguing about. You know, it's, it's, oh, it's the Bible, it's theology, and yet Paul says they're useless topics. Or they're talking about deep theological issues, but they're really ignorant what they're talking about. They're raising controversies sometimes, but it's only to be controversial. It's a sport to them. They enjoy it. And Paul says, don't have anything to do with them. Don't have anything to do with them. So if we could see ourselves as God sees us, not the way we want to see ourselves, then we'd see the reason that we meddle, the reason we stir up strife is because of what's in our heart. So for example, Proverbs 28, verse 25 says it's because of arrogance. It says an arrogant man stirs up strife. Ah, oh, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you. I've thought about this. I understand these things. I have experience in these things. You're also ignorant. There's an arrogance behind it. Or, as Proverbs 29.22 says, an angry man stirs up strife. It's someone who's hurt, someone who's been overlooked, someone who's been insulted, feels disrespected, and is now hitting back. The poison is being spewed out. Never enter a quarrel unless you, that you don't have to. That's verse 17. Let you know, we, we paraphrase it. Let sleeping dogs lie, right? That's what we say. And that's what this parable is saying. Mind your own business. But then, verse 18 and 19. It's like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death. So is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, was I not joking? So, here's what we shouldn't do. Don't tease, don't jo joke if it hurts someone. I, I think humor is good, by the way. I love humor, and I think most people do. Most, I think sane and stable people do love humor. We love to laugh at, at life, especially sometimes 
Humor shows humility if we're willing to laugh at ourselves and see our own foibles, our own weaknesses. Very often, humor has a, has a positive effect, but the fool, you see, has no discernment. The fuel, fool doesn't know it's the wrong time for this kind of humor. The fool doesn't know that his words and his humor are directed at a very tender spot, and it's hitting hard on the, on the hearer. The fool doesn't know that he's not funny also, by the way. The, so the fool says these hard, biting words, and then at the end says, ah, I was just kidding. Forget about it. I was just joking. And he thinks that makes it all right. Don't joke. Don't tease if it hurts. And here's the third one, verse 20. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. Don't add fuel to a quarrel. I mean, people who are fighting have enough to fight about. Don't add fuel. The fool, though, pours gasoline on a fire. Yeah, and you know what else she said? And whatever anger was there is now doubled. It's done, of course, as a show of loyalty. It says words are whispered, you know, in confidence, leaning in as friend to, to friend. But the effect, and maybe the motive, is to make the fire burn brighter. And it comes from an evil and foolish heart. So don't start up quarrels. Don't add fuel. But 16.28 says, A perverse man stirs up dissension, and a gossip separates close friends. A gossip separates close friends, but the fool doesn't care. It doesn't matter that bonds are being broken, that peace is being shattered. And then, I could say, don't, reignite old quarrels. Verse 21 in chapter 26. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. So the fire is dying down. It's kind of nice. It's been a while since the quarrel took place and people have almost forgotten it. What were we fighting about anyway? I don't remember. And this quarrelsome man comes, this quarrelsome woman comes. I remember let me remind you what you were fighting about, and no, you can't let this go. This is your right. This is important for you to fight to the death. So the fire is almost dead, and he throws another log on the fire. Let's keep this fire going. It's quite the opposite of godly wisdom, which says we should settle things quickly. Proverbs 17, 14, there's this image painted that a quarrel is like a leak in a dam. You know, at first it's a tiny leak, and if you can... Uh, stop it then, it's much easier. But if you, don't, if you don't deal with it, the leak gets bigger and bigger. The dam gets weaker and weaker until finally it bursts and there's nothing you can do. So don't start up old quarrels. In fact, douse them. Deal with them quickly. Rejoice if they're dying down. So there's some don'ts. There's some don'ts. If you're going to be a peacemaker, some things we should never be a part of. And at the same time, there's some do's for the wise person. You don't have to train your children in the don'ts. Isn't it something? They learn to be mean all by themselves. It just, just happens. Where do they pick it up? It's automatic. You don't have to teach them, but we do have to teach words that promote peace. Proverbs 15.1, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Yeah, words are very important. In fact, I'd like to focus on words for these do's. There's many other things we could say, but just because of time, 
What are the words which are the vocabulary of the peacemaker? There's, I think, a neat summary of it in the New Testament. And I, I, I'm always drawn to it, and I can share it with you again. It's in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29. And it says, here's words that you can learn to use by practicing them, and they'll produce peace. So Ephesians 4.29 says, don't let corrupt speech come out of your mouth. But then it says, only such as is good for edifying, as fits the occasion, that it may impart grace to those who hear. I like those because it's easy to remember, E-F-G, at least in this translation. E-F-G, edifying, is it fitting, is it gracious? It's, it's three questions we can teach our children to ask themselves. I'm not saying they'll learn it the first time you teach it. It'll take all of their lives, just as we're still learning this. But it's three questions we can ask ourselves to know if my words are the words of a peacemaker. Edifying. It's actually what Proverbs says also in chapter 12, verse 18. There's one whose words are like thrusts of a sword. Ah, oh, they hurt. They go deep. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Is it edifying? Is what I'm saying building others up? People say, can I swear? Yeah, go ahead, swear. You can say the A word. You can say the B word. You can say the C word, the D word, the S word, the T word, the F word. You can say all of them. But if you're wise, you'll first ask yourself a question. Is this going to do good to my hearers? Fools don't ask that question. For fools, everything that's in their mouth just is babbled out. But the wise say, will this do good to my hearer? So is it edifying? Secondly, is it fitting? Does it fit the occasion? Is this the right time? If you, uh, Proverbs 15, 23 says, how delightful is a timely word or a, a word in season. How delightful is a timely word. There's a right time for humor. There's a wrong time for humor. There's a time for challenging words. There's a time for comforting words. There's a time to just keep our mouths shut. But the fool never asks, is this the right time? Words just bubble out. And lastly, is it gracious? Is what I'm saying gracious? Proverbs 15 verse 4 says, a gentle tongue, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Isn't that a beautiful image? A gentle tongue is a tree of life. So many pictures from the Bible are wrapped up in that little phrase. And so the question I have to ask myself is, am I filled with anger and hurt and frustration? And is that the real source of the words which I'm speaking? Or is there grace deep in my heart? Is there love? A genuine regard for Christ who is truth and grace? Are my intentions grace through and through? And then, if those are my intentions, are the words wrapped up in colorful, gracious wrapping so that I'm presenting to, uh, it to others as a gift? So here's some do's. If you're a peacemaker, EFG. Are my words edifying? Do they fit the occasion? Are they gracious? And if we do this, we go a long ways towards starting to learn this skill, this wisdom of being peacemakers in the world, peacemakers that honor Christ. So why does God love peace? Why does God love peacemakers? What's the big deal with that? Well, God blesses peacemakers, so he must be inclined towards them. Proverbs 12:20 says, 
that there is deceit in the hearts of those who plot evil, but joy for those who promote peace. God gives joy to those who promote peace. And I already quoted Matthew 5.9, the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. God blesses those who are peacemakers. He's inclined to them. He wants those who's, who are growing in this skill, who, who want to grow, want to practice this wisdom of being peacemakers. And it does take practice. People who never practice it never get wise in the ways of peacemaking, but those who practice it get better and better at it, just like any other skill. And the question, therefore, is are we practicing making peace? Are we teaching our children to practice making peace? Instance by instance, example by example. What could you have done here? What did you do there that worked so well? Are you getting better and better at doing what God blesses, that is, making peace? In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it tells us to practice peace. It says, no, no, you can't make peace everywhere, but as much as lies in you, practice peace. Seek peace. Make peace with everyone. I'm not responsible. I didn't do anything. It's her problem. It's his problem. Yeah, but as much as you're responsible, I'm only responsible, I don't know, maybe 1%. Well, then if you have 1% influence, if you have 1% responsibility, use it to make peace. And the question is, am I doing that? Am I using that 1% responsibility to make peace in the honor of my God who loves peace? Or am I fanning the flames? Am I spreading strife? What have I done? Am I a peacemaker? Am I practicing making peace? Well, why should I? I know you're not going to say this out loud, at least not in church, but you'll say it at home. You know, I have rights too. I was the one who was wrong. I was the one that was gossiped against, slandered against. I was the one that was insulted, robbed, whatever it was. I have rights too. Why should I do this? Because God loves peacemakers. You know why he loves peacemakers? Because he's a peacemaker. The whole story of the Bible is the Bible is the story of a divine peacemaker who's paying the cost to make peace with you and me. God's heart is the heart of a peacemaker. And so Jesus, when God was incarnate among us, where his full revelation was seen, he calls himself the Prince of Peace. And he didn't make peace by destroying his enemies or even ignoring his enemies. You know, destroying his enemies would have produced a kind of a detente maybe. You know, there'd be no conflict, but that's not peace because you can't have peace with those who don't exist anymore. He couldn't have made us his friends, which he promised. He couldn't have made us members of his family, adopted us into his family as he promised he would do. And so he paid the price to make peace because he's a peacemaker. He loves peacemaking. So Christ didn't insist on his rights, did he? But he willingly gave them up. I read that text earlier from Philippians 2. He gave up his rights willingly to make peace between God and man. And so Christ's people, God's people, love peace. I think we could say it's a mark of those who belong to God. And they love to make peace. They have a delight in making peace. Wherever they go, they are willing to pay the cost to make peace. So if you go back to the Old Testament, Abraham, the father of those who have faith, was promised this land. It was a promise from God to Abraham. 
And yet later on, when there was a conflict between Abraham and his little torpy nephew Lot, because there wasn't enough water, you know, the whole business. You know what Abraham said? Abraham, this is not, uh, Abraham said, Lot, this is not right that we are quarreling. I'll tell you what, you take one half of the land, I'll take the other. And you know what Lot did? He took the best, the choicest land. Abraham could have insisted on his right. Uh, let me just tell you, Lot, that God made a covenant with me. God gave, promised this land anyway to me. I have the right to have whatever I want. No, he said, okay, fine, you take that, I'll take this, let's just not quarrel anymore. Let's just be at peace. God's people love peace. I wonder what that would be like if we did that. What, what effect would that have if we didn't insist on our rights anymore in our marriages? If we had the attitude of Christ, if we had that attitude that Abraham had, what would that mean for our families? What would that mean for our churches if people quit behaving like the world where everybody is told to insist on their rights and on their privileges and instead we became those who are lovers of peace? How different would life be? Later on, a few centuries later, after Abraham, Joseph comes on the scene and you remember that he was sold into slavery by his own brothers and then they broke Joseph's father's heart by telling the dad that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. He had the right to hate his brothers. He had the right to destroy them. Who wouldn't? Who would blame him for that? And later on, when God elevated Joseph to the place of becoming a prince in Egypt, he had the power to destroy them. But what did he do? Instead, he sought peace. Trusting in God's sovereignty, he looked at his brothers who were Trembling in fear, knowing they could be destroyed by just a word from Joseph, he said, you intended it for evil, but God used it for good. Let's just forget about that and be brothers now. It's done. Let's just be a family. What would happen? What would happen if we loved peace, trusting in God? I'll tell you something. If you do that, some will think you're weak if you pursue peace. Some will laugh at you. Some will mock you. They'll think you're soft, you're giving in. And you have to remind yourself, you have to ask yourself, was Jesus weak when he went to the cross? Was he being soft? Or was that a supreme display of courage, of strength, of power to overcome sin purposely in order to make peace between man and God? So let others say what they will. As you make peace, you'll have the secret joy of knowing that we are walking in the footsteps of the Prince of Peace, of our Lord and Savior Jesus. We will know that People may mock us, people may laugh at us, but we will be blessed by God. Because no matter what they say about you at work or at school or in your family or in your marriage, God from above will look down on you and say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are called the children of God. Amen. Lord God, we thank you and praise you and bless your name. We especially praise you that you are a peacemaker, that you love peace enough to die on the cross for us, to pay that cost, to bear the cost of making peace so that we could be called your friends, we could be called your sons and daughters. We want that heart ourselves. We pray, Lord, for marriages, we pray for families, we pray for friendships, pray for every relationship in this church. Transform us, Lord, as you give us your heart, the heart of one who loves peace. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. God is with us forever. 
forever. Psalm 133 says, How good and pleasant it is, if I can paraphrase it, for Christians to dwell together in unity. And it's there that the Lord commands a blessing, life forevermore. And I think that's a fitting benediction. May all of you, the children of God, love peace and love making peace so that God will smile on you and bless you as you promote peace wherever he puts you. Amen.